So today we're continuing our way through the book of Luke. Um, If you have a a Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are pew Bibles near you. uh, And it's the passage is on page 859 there. And I mentioned this last week. Originally, I had planned to do one sermon on the temptation of Jesus. But as I was working on it, there, there's so much here. And so last week was more of an introduction to the temptation of Christ. And today we're going to actually be diving into the three temptations that he faced. And, and remember that this is coming at the very beginning of his public ministry. He was baptized by John the Baptist. Luke gave the genealogy of Jesus. And then it says that the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and if you weren't here last week, uh, there there's one thing that I that I want to mention, um, just to, to frame our what we're going to be looking at today. When we look at this temptation of Jesus, the big question is how do we read this and how does it apply to us? And sometimes, and this happens when we read all different parts of the Bible, we can think, okay, this is just a handbook for me to know how to do the right thing, and so we say. All right, Jesus faced temptation, I'll face temptation. And I can overcome temptation by doing it the way that Jesus did it. And what we said is that, that in a way, the main point of this passage and this temptation, especially flowing out of uh, Jesus being presented as the second Adam, coming to turn back the curse, is that we can't do it. <laughs> we can't do it by our own strength. We can't face temptation in of ourselves that every single human being who has ever lived, apart from Jesus, has failed in the face of temptation. And and what the message of the the Bible says is that Jesus came to obey for us, that that he faced Satan because we couldn't do it. But then I also said that then there's there's an irony here, and and it's the, the great paradox of Christianity, that it says you can't do it, but praise God Jesus did it for you, so look to him, trust in him, rely on him. But then if you're trusting in Jesus, he sends his Holy Spirit, he gives you power, and then he gives you the ability to actually begin facing temptation with the wisdom of Christ. And then suddenly the temptation of Jesus does begin a, become a handbook for us to face temptation. And, and that's the reason I mention that is because today that's really what we're going to be, be focusing on more so is how does the temptation of Jesus show us how to face temptation in all sorts of different ways. But before we we dive into it more, I just want to read our passage. So again, last week we looked at uh, verse 1 and 2, but today I'll be reading from verse 1 all the way through verse 15. So again, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, 
for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on your hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we see how even the Son of God, when he was facing temptation, didn't rely on himself, but he relied on your written word. He quoted scripture back to Satan, even as scripture was mishandling, or Satan was mishandling scripture. So today, Lord, we, as we move through this passage, we pray that we could be equipped through your word to, to face perversions of your word, to face temptations, and to be able to, to see and know and rest in your truth. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so you may notice in the bulletin uh, the, the title for uh, the, the message today uh, is Provision, Power, and Protection. And, and really those three words describe these three temptations that, that Jesus faced. And uh, I, was, I was laughing to someone, actually to Mark and Debbie yesterday, and saying that I almost never do alliteration. Um, and, and so... It, but it just fell, fell together so well. But I, I struggled with the, the last word there um, is it, because it's provision, power, protection. But if you look at the third temptation, which we'll do in a moment, it, it's provision, but it's also proof. And so if you could even take your, your pen and just cross out protection or, or add below proof. Because really, that's what, what Satan brings to Jesus. He tries to get Jesus to seek provision to seek power, to seek proof, proof of protection apart from God. And as we face temptation in the world, which we do, we will, we have, then these are the places that Satan is likely to try to tempt us as well. To, he, he wants us to try to seek provision apart from God. He wants us to seek power. He wants us to seek proof that, that God hasn't promised and so as we, as we walk through this passage today, looking at each of these temptations um, individually, we'll see that it, it does teach us in Christ, through the wisdom and power of Christ, how to face temptation in the world. And so let's begin then with this first temptation, to seek provision apart from God. And look again at, at your Bible, verse 3. It says, The devil said to him, 
if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And you'll remember that, that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days in the desert when Satan shows up. And that's a long time to not eat. Unless we think, well, he's God. It wasn't really very hard. He's fully human. And, and that's why Luke says that he was hungry at the end of those 40 days. That he really suffered when tempted. And so he was probably closer to death at this moment when Satan shows up than he would be again until the crucifixion itself. And so what this means is that Jesus saw very clearly his need for provision, that he needed food or he would die very soon. He needed shelter in the desert or he would be scorched to death. He, he needed water. I mean, it says that he didn't eat, but he probably had water, but who knows where that was coming from or how much water he had left. He needed even provision of spiritual strength to be launching his public ministry. And I think that you and I can sympathize with that. We, we may not be wandering in a desert somewhere without food, but we need food, we need shelter, we need provision, we need money. And it's not just that we need these things because we just want to have more stuff. I mean, that may be part of it, but we, we sense that we need food, we need shelter, or we're going to die. Um, that, that these are necessities of life. We need it actually to live. But most of us, though, aren't just content with seeking provision to avoid death. Uh, I don't think really any of us would be happy just to be locked up in prison for the rest of our life, having food and water, um, even though that would keep us alive. That, that what we're hoping is that as we have provision of, of food and water and shelter and the things that we think we need, that somehow that's going to bring us satisfaction, that we want to eat a meal, not just be full, but we actually want to be satisfied when we're done eating. And that we want then to have that satisfaction flow into our whole life. And so it's, it's really at the very root of the human condition. Provision to avoid death, to secure life, to work for lasting satisfaction through the things that we have. But as Satan comes with this temptation, though, what he's trying to do is, is to say that this provision that we need, this provision that means satisfaction that somehow God has failed, that God actually has not provided the things that we need. And it's interesting that he begins the first temptation with this conditional statement. He says, if you are the son of God. And so why does he start this way? Well, I think what he's saying is, is Jesus, you desperately need provision. I mean, you're you're human, you need food to live, you need shelter to live, you, you're looking for satisfaction in life, and, and he's saying, Jesus, aren't you the Son of God? I heard what God said at your baptism, said, you are the, my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, but, but look at you right now. You're, you're, you're starving to death. You haven't bathed in weeks. Is this how God treats his Son? Is, is God actually good? Is he actually loving? Is he actually going to provide the things that you need right now? 
or, or does your circumstance indicate that God isn't there or he isn't faithful and he isn't good? And I think that, that he, Satan comes to us with this suggestion as well, that he tempts us here because we need provision, we need food, we need shelter, we need life, we need things to, to live. But then we wonder when, when life is hard, when things seem dark, is God actually going to provide? Is he actually going to show up? Is he actually going to, to give the things that we need? Or has he somehow abandoned us in the world? And if he has, what does that say about who he is? And putting it more in, in philosophical terms, Satan is really giving just the, the classic problem of evil to try to disprove God to Jesus. And the, the problem of evil says that the Bible presents a God that is all-loving, and that is all-powerful. And so, as we look in the world, though, we see poverty, we see pain, we see darkness, we see a lack of provision in the world. And so it says that either God isn't really loving, because otherwise he wouldn't let this happen, or maybe he's loving, but he's not actually powerful, that he wants to stop it, he wants to provide, but he doesn't have the power to provide. And so it's impossible to have a God who's both loving and both powerful. And that, that basic argument is what, what, Jesus, what rather Satan is saying to Jesus here. He's saying, you need provision, but, but look at you. It, God hasn't given it, and so you need to, to look somewhere else. And so that's really then where, where Satan brings the, the therefore in his argument. He brings the last shoe of the argument down and says, God's holding out on you. That's really clear. Jesus from what's happening here and so prove right now that you are the son of God prove that God actually does care for you or or actually don't rely on him look to just the power that is within yourself and take this stone and turn it into bread just open a bakery in the desert <laughs> and 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 people are going to flock out they're going to be amazed you're going to have plenty of to eat they probably will praise you, turn you into some sort of a king out in the desert because you can provide not only for yourself, but you can provide for the, the nations around you this great need of humans for bread. And so as, as we think about that, though, Jesus sees through the lie of Satan. He sees what's actually going on because Jesus isn't afraid to use his power to make food. Later in his ministry, he's going to feed the 5,000 with just a little bit of bread and fish. Uh, he's going to feed the 4,000. So he, he, he'll do this if it's actually according to God's will. But he recognizes that, that God is not calling him to make bread from stones at this moment. That The Holy Spirit had driven him out into the wilderness to be tested. That the Holy Spirit had given him this 40-day fast. And so it wouldn't be right to then seek this provision apart from the will of God, to try to take matters into his own hand. But I think that, that you and I would respond differently if we face these things. Because we, we see our need for financial provision, um, but sometimes we're, we're afraid that, that we won't have enough. And if you look at the Bible, the teaching of Scripture as a whole, there's this pattern where, where believers are called to, to take part of what God has given them financially and give it back to God. It's called a tithe. 
And it's something that, that's done in faith, where it's not that you wait to see how much you have, but you take whatever it is, you take that 10% out, you give it away, trusting the Lord to provide. And that's hard for human beings, and we push against it, and it's not something that, that we do to earn God's favor. It's not something we do uh, to try to work our way up to him, but as a response of, of grace. But the reason that, that well-meaning Christians really fail to, to live in obedience in that way is because we say, I need these things to live. I need to pay my rent. And, and if I give, if I am generous, not just with money, but with resources or time or if, if, I, if I have a spirit of generosity, is God actually going to show up and meet me in that moment? Or am I going to, uh, in the extreme, be, be in the desert with, with no food and shelter and water and die alone without God? And so what we do is we take matters into our own hands and, and we try to, to make stones into bread. Or here's a, another example. That, that God not only wants us to give back financial resources that he's given to us, but, but also God has given us time. And, and there's, a, there's a pattern of scripture of, of giving time back to, to God in, in worship and in fellowship. You know, in the Old Testament, there's the pattern of, of the, the Sabbath, resting on the seventh day. And, and even though believers have different principles, different understanding of what it means to rest on, on Sunday, on the the Lord's Day, there, there is this basic pattern of not neglecting to gather together where, where God says you have, you have six days to work, you have a, a day set aside to gather with God's people, to be strengthened for, for preaching, for studying God's word, for celebrating the Lord's Supper, for, for fellowship, and God's promise that he can strengthen us and, and use these things. And, I, and I'm not saying that, that there's never times where somebody can, can miss church. I'm not trying to lay down some sort of legalistic principle because there are times when there are, are really works of necessity where somebody has to work or they have to, to go serve others in some way. And so that's not, they're not able to, to gather with God's people to set aside that, that time. But I think that when, when we have to make those decisions, to really be examining our, our hearts and looking inside and, and, and saying, are, are we trusting God's provision? And are we actually, or are we living in a kind of fear of saying, you know, maybe if I, if I do what God has, has said and, 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 and seek him, maybe I won't have enough. So, so maybe I need to just take that extra shift because, you know, I really need to, to stockpile what I have, or maybe God won't actually show up and so to, to say no we can trust the Lord to provide the things that we need and, and there's a, a great example of this in, in the Old Testament um, and it, it comes from the, the time when Israel was wandering in the, in the desert um, after they had been brought out from slavery in Egypt and God said I'll, I'll provide for you I'll give you everything that you need and so the, the manna would appear on the ground in the morning. People would go gather it. They would have food. Um, but it's interesting, if you go back and you read it, God wouldn't let them stockpile manna. <laughs> um, and he, he wouldn't let them say, okay, let's build up this little storage supply here. And so if for some reason God decides not to show up, we'll be ready. <laughs> we'll be prepared for God to abandon us in the desert. 
And, and even on the, the Sabbath, they, the day before, they would be able to gather a double portion. And if they went out, which they would do, and say, okay, this will be our opportunity to stockpile. We'll go out on the Sabbath, and we'll try to gather in that day. But there wouldn't be anything there. But they had to, to rely on the provision of God. But what, what happened was that they began to, to fear They began to try to trust in themselves. And listen to what it says in Exodus 16. It says that they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. And so morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And so so you can see there, they gathered it, tried to stockpile to have the rainy day for when God abandons them, that God, they, it would actually just rot. It, it wouldn't work. But that's what we do to God, where we, we say, I'm not sure if you're going to show up, so I'm going to stockpile. In, in the event of your abandonment, I'm going to turn stones into bread. And I think that that's why Jesus, as he confronts this temptation of Satan here, that he does it by quoting the book of Deuteronomy. That was written by Moses as Israel was wandering in the desert while they were failing to trust God's provision and yet he was providing for them. And so if you, if you turn in your Bible back to the book of Deuteronomy, and I would encourage you actually to do that, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is the, the fifth book of the Bible. And I'll begin reading in verse 2. It says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you, uh, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So you can see what, what Moses is saying there, that, that as Israel was, was wandering in the desert, that it, it says that, that God let them feel hunger. That, that in a way he took away the provision that they thought that they could have in themselves. And then he gives the reason. He said he did that and then provided the manna so that they could know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Of God, And so we say, where do we find actual lasting provision? How is God going to provide for us? It is through the, the word of God that, that man does not live ultimately by the bread that we have, by the food we have. We don't live by the money in our bank account. We don't live by the size of our house, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because we know this, that, that somebody can have all the wealth of the world, all the kingdoms of the world, and come to the moment of death without knowing God and without knowing his word and have absolutely nothing. But yet somebody can lack provision in this life. Somebody can be like Jesus who was in the desert without food, who was homeless, who ended up dying a death of, of crucifixion, and yet have everything in the promise of resurrection, that God raised him from the dead, and he promises that in Christ we'll be raised with him, that, that the one day, even no matter what happens in this life, we have the promise of full provision 
through Jesus. And so, so our horizon for God's provision isn't just in this life, but it's, it's for the life to come. And because, as it says in Scripture, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so this is the, the first temptation, then, to, to seek provision apart from God. But now let's look at the, the second temptation, which is to seek power apart from God. And look at verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so the, the devil here takes Jesus to a high mountain, as we read in, in Matthew, the parallel account there, that he brought to him to a high mountain, and he shows him that all the kingdoms of the world, all the glory of the world in a moment, it says. And we don't know what is it like to see the, the glory in the kingdoms of the earth in a moment. Um, and I, I doubt it was necessarily physical sight, I mean, just practically the curvature of the earth, so it, it seems what, what happened was that Satan gave him some sort of a, a vision of the, the glory of the earth throughout the, the world. I mean, and, and we don't, again, know what it looked like, but you could almost imagine just this flashing before his eyes, the, the, the glory and the power of Rome and Caesar, the glory and, and power of, of China and the, the empire there, the glory and power that of empires in Mesoamerica, just all the power that the humanity could muster in about 29 AD. And, and that, that comes before him. But why does Satan do that? Why does he show him all of the world? And I think that it had to do with, with the longing of Jesus because Jesus longed for a type of righteous power he knew that his mission was to come to redeem humanity, but to come as a king. And that, that one day he would rule the nations as not just God, but as the God-man. And then it says in scripture that, that one day every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. But then what we see here is that, that Satan is suggesting another way to that same end. Another way to accomplish that, that power, that what it is, it's the, the crown without the cross. It's, it's to take control of a kingdom without humility and suffering as the way to it. And, and again, there, there's this indictment of God that is implicit here where Satan is saying, you know what, God isn't actually powerful enough to give it to you. Look at you right now, you're powerless in the desert is if you if God can't even provide for you right now is he actually going to be able to give you the power to to rule and reign and so this is I think the the pattern of temptation throughout scripture that Satan begins with an element of truth because Satan says I have authority over the the kingdoms of the world and the first temptation he says if you are the son of God because he knew that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and we read in, in Scripture that 
Satan has this authority. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. Jesus even calls him in the book of John the ruler of this world. But what Satan does is, is he takes that element of truth, but then twists it and, and redefines it and says, yes, I'm the, the ruler of this world, and actually my rule is independent of God, that my rule is above God, that I'm actually the one who is sovereign, I'm the one who's, who's in control. But it's a lie because God is sovereign, God is in control, God is the one that Satan can't do anything apart from the will of God. And you see that in the Old Testament in the book of Job where Satan wants to test and afflict Job and God gives him permission, but he can't go any further than God permits. But Satan comes to us then with this lie and, and, and he first he, he sticks his finger in our feeling of weakness and our feeling of powerlessness and, and he shows that, that you don't have the power that you think you do and where are you going to get it? And so he tries to then bring us to other places to believe that these things can provide the power and, and take away the feeling of weakness that we have. And so it could be money, where we see power in money, power in wealth, the power that people have who have a lot of possessions. And so I was saying, instead of worshiping God and trusting him as the one who has the power, what can really give you power, what can really give you influence is by having more. And so if you devote yourself to money, if you worship money, if you put all of your energy and your time into money, then your power, feeling of powerlessness that you have will go away. Or it comes and says, you feel powerless, but look at governments. They can tax. They can wage war. They can punish. That's where power is found. And so put all of your energy into the government. Worship the government. Worship politics. If you have the right person in office, things are going to be great. If you have the wrong person, it's going to be horrible. If, if the military is too small or too big or if the government's too small or too big. And so we think if we devote ourselves to the government, then our feeling of powerlessness will somehow go away if we worship human authority. Or we see power in intellect and we say, people who really get ahead are the intelligent. It comes through education. It comes through being smart. And so we say we'll devote ourselves to education, to intelligence, and somehow as we become smarter and smarter and smarter that our, our feeling of powerlessness will go away and will be complete. Because what Satan wants is for us to see the power in some other place other than God. He's not necessarily trying to turn us into Satanists who you know, are pouring out blood on altars. Um, he's okay if that happens, but that's not his, his main goal. His main goal is to have us worship the creature rather than the creator, to see that as where we'll find life and power. But again, thankfully, Jesus sees through the lies, and he confronts it again with a simple quotation of Scripture. It's so interesting. Each place Jesus just responds with scripture. He doesn't respond with his own words or appealing to his own authority. And this time he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. And if you, again, turn there in your Bible, back to Deuteronomy, make you flip around your Bible a bit today, it's, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God 
in the midst of you is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And so what Moses is saying here, and, and Jesus quoting Moses to Satan, is that, no, you're wrong. That the power, the authority, it's with God alone. And so we don't look to the nations around us. We don't look to the people around us and say, where does the world say power comes from? But we, we look to God. We, we worship him. We trust him to provide. And so if you today are feeling powerless in some way, and, and there's many different ways to feel powerless, the answer isn't to trust in Satan or other religions or in yourself or in your money or in politics or your intelligence, but really to hear what God said to the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, where is the power of God displayed? It's actually in weakness. And therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so that then is the, the second temptation to seek power apart from God. But now we'll look at this third and, and final temptation that Jesus faces to seek proof apart from God, to seek this proof of God's provision apart from him. So look at, at verse 9. It says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on your hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so here, Satan thinks, okay, I'm getting nowhere in the desert. I'm going to change the setting a little bit. He brings him from the desert back into civilization, to the very heart of civilization, to the very heart of Jewish society in Jerusalem, to the very heart of Jewish religion at the temple, and brings him presumably to the wall of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and as you stood on this wall and you looked down into the Kidron Valley, uh, and they say it's about... 450 feet down, so this dizzying height. And then that is where Satan begins to spin and to twist his last and final deception. And essentially, what Satan is saying is this. If you were to paraphrase his words, he's saying, Jesus, you've quoted the Bible a lot to me, and that I'm actually a Bible scholar myself. I have a seminary degree, you know, got a uh, was ordained online, and, uh, <laughs> and, and so I've read Psalm 91 in detail. I know it better than any human scholar, and I'm quite confident that verse 11 of Psalm 91 says that the, the Lord will command the angels to guard the righteous one, and then in verse 12 it says that the, the angels will bear him up lest he strike his foot against a stone. And so, Jesus, I'm pretty sure that, that you're the righteous one. Pretty sure that God says that he's going to protect you. But is that actually true? Can you prove it? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Prove to me, prove to yourself right now that Psalm 91 is actually true. 
And so I, I was trying to, to think then of an illustration of, of what Satan is doing here, how he's trying to, to spin this lie. And the best analogy I could um, think of was just imagining somebody come t- coming to me, and this has never happened, um, and I got permission for Grace to use this illustration. So somebody, somebody comes to me and, and says, you know, Grace, are you sure that you can trust her? You know, she just told you she's going to the grocery store, but do you really know that she went to the grocery store? Do you really know she's faithful? And so prove to yourself and prove to me right now that she actually is faithful. Just hire a private investigator and, and send the private investigator after her. What is there to lose? There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Just, just do it, and then you'll know for sure. And you can even silence my accusation right now if you just do what I'm saying. And if, and if somebody came to me and said that, I, I wouldn't be too impressed. And, and I wouldn't dignify them, and I wouldn't dignify the accusation by saying, you know what, you're right. Grace has never given me any reason to doubt her, her faithfulness, but I'm just going to prove it to you right now. And, and then, you know, I hire the investigator, goes after her. But then what would Grace do if she found out that I hired a private investigator to trail her? Uh, that she wouldn't say, oh, well, that makes sense. You really need to know for sure. You need, you need proof. Um, she would say, no, what have you ever done to doubt me? What, or what have I done that, that you would doubt me in this way? That, that, has, that it hasn't, haven't I shown a, a pattern of trustworthiness? But it's the, the same with, with God, that, that if, we're, if we're putting God to the test, we're essentially saying, God, you have been faithful. You have proven your faithfulness in, in so many ways. But yet, even at the suggestion that you may not be true, I'm going to try to prove you. I'm going to test it then I'll know for sure, then others will know for sure, and we can just settle this here today. And, and I think that, just imagine the, how that makes somebody feel. I mean, even you know, our, our daughter, Helen, she's 16, mo- 16 months old, but in, in a, a few years, if I, if I tell her something, I don't want her just to say, you know what, I really need to put that to the test, especially when it's a matter of life and safety. If I say, don't run out in front of that car. And she says, well, let me use the scientific method to test your, this hypothesis. So I say, don't stick your hand into this flame. Let me test this to see if it's actually true. That, that no, we, we, we recognize that, that God loves us, that he's our, our father, that he cares for us, that, that we don't need to test his word, but we can trust him because he's proved himself to be true over and over again. And it's interesting that once again, as, as Jesus confronts this, that he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, again. And, and it's a passage in the Old Testament where it says that we shouldn't put the Lord to the test. And if you go back, we won't turn to Deuteronomy again, but if you will go back and you look at it, it says, don't put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. And you think, Massa? What's Massa? And you, you follow the cross-references in your Bible, and, you, and it takes you to another incident of Israel when they're in the desert being tempted. And what they wanted to do was, was basically know for sure that God was going to show up. God said, I'm, I love you. I care for you. I've brought you out of slavery. I'm going to provide everything that you need. But then they were thirsty and they said, oh, no, God's never going to provide water for us. 
So they went to Moses and said, Moses, give us water to drink. They grumbled against the Lord in the wilderness and, and even said that we would be better off if we had just stayed in Egypt. And so God named the place Massa because Israel put the Lord to the test. And I think that, that you and I also put the Lord to the test, that we're a lot like Israel in the desert where we go, grumble, we complain, we think that we'd be better off back in, in slavery to where we were apart from Christianity. But then we, we ask, how is it that we can actually know for sure? How can we have this proof that if we, if we shouldn't put God to the test, how do we actually know that he is faithful and that he is true? And really that, that proof that God gives us and all the things that we have talked about, the, the provision and the power, they come together at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it is ultimately the, the cross where, where we see this promise of God, that God promised that he will provide for us. But as Jesus hung on the cross, dying and suffering, he, he had lost everything, it seems. That God promises that he'll empower us, but, but Jesus on the cross was completely and utterly powerless. And that, that God promises that he will show himself, that he'll prove himself true. But as Jesus was, was suffering and dying, he, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that as, as Jesus was suffering on the cross, um, that Satan returned. Even in our text, it says that Satan waited for an opportune time to return. And, and if you look at the Gospels, that there, there's voices coming from the, the crowd around the cross. And it's the very words that Jesus uses in the temptation, saying, if you are the Son of God, bring yourself down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, deliver yourself. And it probably seemed to vindicate Satan's accusation, saying, see, you should have sought provision and power and proof apart from God because look at where trusting in the Lord has brought you. It's brought you to the place of death and, and crucifixion. But what Satan could never understand is actually the wisdom of the cross. That the, the love of Christ displayed in the cross is completely incomprehensible to his mind because what happens in the cross is that the love of God is displayed, that, that, that glory comes through humility, that through suffering and loss comes life. And so as we look at the cross then, that, that Christ gives us provision because he gave up his right to provision, that he provides forgiveness and salvation, that Christ gave up power so that we could have the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of forgiveness, the power to follow God, to, to face temptation, that Christ gave up this sense of the presence of God in that moment as he cried out, to the Lord so that he could die and that God would raise him from the dead. And in the resurrection, then we have the ultimate proof. So we don't need to put God to the test because he has given us the proof that is beyond all proofs by raising his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And, and that is where we find, find life and hope and, and confidence. And just to, to wrap up, I want to read this quote from the song we sing here often called In Christ Alone. And it says, that there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. 
for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of men can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. And it is that this power of Christ that we stand in that we see displayed for us. And you wonder, why is it that we end every service with the Lord's Supper after we hear from God's word? Well, Jesus said, quoting the Old Testament, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we hear the word of God preached, we hear the gospel, and then we have bread right here. And, and it's not so that we can sustain our, our body, but it's a symbol and it shows us that the provision that we have, the, the life, is not going to be when you, when you eat this bread, it's going to go into your body, your body's going to digest it, and you're going to get energy and strength and power from this bread. But that is, pales in comparison to, to feeding on God's word, knowing the power of Christ that he provides for us. He provides himself for us, that, that he gives us power through the Holy Spirit and that he gives us proof by his blood that was shed, his body that was broken as he rises again from the dead.